0: An explanation for the word exegesis? Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. An exegesis is, in fact, an explanation or an interpretation, often but not always, of a text in the Bible. And we'll need to be good exegetes as we work through Hebrews chapter 6. Of the four possible meanings, Jim will give us many reasons to prefer the most positive one. The sermon is called The Immutable Promise of God, And for context, we'll go all the way back to Genesis 22, verse 16.
1: By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, not spared Isaac, and have not withheld your your only son... I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command." And I'm going to tell you, that promise still sticks tonight. God's still on target with that promise. He didn't quit back there when Mary gave birth to a baby. He didn't quit when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He didn't quit when Jesus rose from the grave. He didn't quit at Pentecost when the Spirit of God came and the church was born. God didn't quit on this. God's not a quitter. God made a promise. That's absolutely take it to the bank. He doubled it by making an oath. In a sense, God said, I put everything I am, all that I own, I pledge it all and put it in the pot. If my promise fails, you own me, Abraham. I become your slave, you become my master. How about them apples? When was the oath made? After Abraham passed the test. He didn't fail the test, he passed the test. First, the promise, and we read that when Abraham heard the promise, he believed God, and the text tells us that Abraham's response of faith, God accounted to Abraham as righteousness. That is, he imputed to Abraham all the benefits that would be won, all the benefits that would be achieved through the accomplishment of that promise before the promise was accomplished. Abraham believed God. He expressed faith. He took God at God's face value. He shook hands with God and decided, that's God, I'm human, I'm putting it all in. That's what Abraham did. And that's what the act of faith is that gave you salvation. Now there's a logic to it. There's a science to it. There's prophecies to it. There's all kinds of ways you can can come back to that moment when you understood that Jesus on the cross died in your place for your sin, he was buried, rose again, demonstrating his deity, and he offers to you full eternal salvation based upon his finished work. But the bottom line is, do you believe God? Not can you prove it logically, not can you take me to Jerusalem and show me the exact place where Jesus died, because you can't do that, you know. Not that you can take me to someplace in, in Judea and point out the exact tomb where Jesus actually was laid. You can't do that. You know that, don't you? Those kind of scientific approaches to this thing absolutely fall flat. The question is, are you going to trust God? you Are going to take God at his value? God made a promise. And righteousness is imputed to you by God, not by the fact that you suddenly become good or religious, but righteousness is imputed to you on the basis of the fact that you look God in the eye and said, I trust you. I put my life in your hands. I take you at face value. Got that? But you see... Because of the (laughs) hardheadedness, because of the devastating blow that sin brought into man's heart and man's experience, God was willing to up the ante. In addition to the promise, he was willing to cover it with an oath. So that, as the text tells us, so that through two unchangeable things, God has guaranteed to us his unchangeable purpose. What's his purpose? What's God's purpose? His purpose is to redeem from humanity sinners who deserve the lake of fire, make them his sons, forgive them of their sins give them an heirship, give them a relationship with him, exalt them above angels and make them the rulers with Jesus of the age to come. That's God's purpose. Incredible. Now I'm going to tell you, I don't know of any place in Scripture you're going to find verses that are more heavily weighted to the fact that God makes a promise, that promise is received by you on the basis of your confidence in God's integrity. You take God at what he says. You shake hands. You give him your heart, your life. You become his. He gives you righteousness. And it's sealed. And it's a transaction that is wholly perpetrated, accomplished by God. You bring nothing to the table but guilt. You bring nothing to the table but sin. God brings everything in his promise. That's pretty impressive. And if you can't trust God's promise, God says, I'll double it with an oath. I'll put everything I am, my integrity, my deity, my creation, everything I have, I pledge as security behind the promise that I've already made. Can you find any place in scripture where a deeper, more profound, more unshakable, invincible foundation is stated for your faith? No, you can't. At least I can't. If you can, show it to me. Love to have it. Now, notice that the writer brings up this example for two reasons. First of all, he's bridging He's bridging his argument. He wants to get back to the thing that's just burning in his heart. The writer just wants to get back and talk about Jesus. He wants to bring our attention to Jesus. He wants to explain to us how Jesus is our high priest. He wants to explain to us what that means, the benefits of that. He wants to explain to us how we can take advantage of that now. That's, what that, that's, what's, that's what's driving him. And who is the logical connection to Melchizedek? Abraham, Abraham, well, look at it, look at it. Um, Let's see, look at chapter seven, verse four, and we're not going there tonight, but just look at that verse, chapter seven, verse four, it's talking about this Melchizedek, verse one says, and then it quotes this whole long litany, remains a priest forever, verse four, now consider how great this man, Melchizedek was, to whom even Abraham, see that? even Abraham. We mean Melchizedek in the Old Testament because of his encounter with Abraham. So the writer, the the author, has set us up, he's set us up to now talk about Melchizedek and how Melchizedek's priesthood defines Jesus' priesthood. That's going to be fun. We'll be there next week. But you see the connection? He introduces Abraham and Abraham's relationship with God, Abraham's response to God, God's response to Abraham concerning the son and concerning all the promises he made to Abraham. All of that is distilled in God's promise, doubled by God's oath. See that? Why? Because the writer, having just written this bombastic passage of Scripture, doesn't want that passage of scripture to diminish the faith of his respondents. That's why he does it. Now, look, look with me now. Back, verse nine, chapter six, verse nine. Here's what the writer says: Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, look at it, underline it. Chapter 6, Hebrews, verse 9, even though we are speaking this way, what way? Well, this whole diatribe he's just given, this whole whole juxtaposition, this whole thing that is impossible, because that's what he says in verse 4, it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, blah, 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 blah. See all that? That's impossible. Well, why is it impossible? Well, he tells us down there in, uh, let's see, it's in verse 6. Because to their own harm, they are crucifying the Son of God and holding him, that's Jesus, up to contempt. That's the heart of the problem. And since that's what they're doing it is impossible to bring them to a place of repentance. Why? Because all repentance rests upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the fulfillment of God's promises. But the writer says, though I've written this very, very strong, this very, very strong passage, he says, even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of better things connected with salvation, and I'm going to, for God, look, is not unjust, unjust. Now we're going back to that. In seminary, I studied under Dr. Homer Kent, Jr., and if you can get this book, buy or steal it, it'll help you tremendously. Uh, Dr., Dr. Kent is a very, very careful, like chief, very, very careful student of, of the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew, especially the Greek. And in his discussion of this passage, I, I want you to listen to what he says. Now I'm going to show you something else, okay? Dr. Kent concludes that of the four possible interpretations of this, here's where, this, where, this is where he sides in. He says that this whole passage is a hypothetical case designed to illustrate the folly of apostasy. Listen, proponents of this view hold that the author has described a supposed case, assuming for the moment the presuppositions of some of his confused and wavering readers. To those who would suggest that they are truly regenerated, but could still go back to Judaism, thus turning from an exclusive alliance with Jesus, he warns by this description what the frightening end would be. And he goes on to say, the passage describes true believers and they would be warned by this statement to remain firm, it also, it also challenges pseudo-believers. People are making claim to experience that they really don't have. It tells them, it tells them, I'll give you an estimate that you have of yourself and show you its logical conclusion. He calls this position hypothetical. Dozens of times, I have had people ask, Jim, has Dr. Kent ever changed his position to hypothetical? And as far as I know, he hasn't. Oh, so scripture now has hypothetical. Look what I found in Dr. Kent's lesson. Listen, listen carefully. This exegesis follows the normal exegesis of verse 4 and 5 regarding the description of regenerated persons. The the audience he's writing to are obviously regenerated. It also treats the warning severely as verse 6 infers. The hypothetical case is frequently objected to as not providing any real warning if it could not happen. Now listen. Listen. Yet hypothetical and even impossible cases are not unknown in Scripture. Here's three. Paul wrote in Galatians 3 verse 12, quote, and the law is not a faith, but the man that does them shall live in them, end of quote. No one ever lived by the law, no one ever could. That statement is an argument, rests upon a hypothetical. If a man could keep the whole law, it would cease to be a hypothetical, but he can't. Here's another one, James chapter 2 verse 10 states, whoever will keep the whole law, that's a hypothetical condition, because no man can keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. There's two. Here's the third one. Jesus said in John chapter nine, verse thirty-nine, "I am come that they might see, that they which see might be made blind. There were none who could see, but Jesus took his hearers at their own estimate of themselves." Thanks, Dr. Kemp. What's his point? His point is that we're not saying anything about Hebrews 6 that you wouldn't have to say in other passages where God presents the extension of a position to its logical conclusion when that logical conclusion has to be hypothetical. That's what he's saying. I believe he's right. Now I want to do something I've never tried before. Are you ready? I want to take the whole case, because I know this troubles you. I want to take the whole passage and draw from the passage ten clear statements that govern the exegesis. You see, exegesis of the language doesn't determine the meaning. It only qualifies meanings that are possible. Or to put that another way, a text of scripture, uh, Dr. Boyer, Greek professor, um, uh, was telling me one day after class, Jim, exegesis of the text, even in the Greek, does not determine the meaning of the passage. But it does limit the possible authentic meanings by ruling out things that it can't be. You got that? Now you want me to read you some, some Greek to really get you confused? <laughs> Didn't think you did. You don't need to go there. But as I pondered this the last two or three weeks, knowing we would have this moment, I kept thinking, Lord, there's got to be a way for these folks to hear your word and to be able to be assured of what the meaning is. So this is my attempt to do that. Are you ready? In chapter 5, The apostle who wrote this, the person who wrote it, begins with a statement about his readers. These are the people to whom he's writing. You would find it down in verse 12. Here's what it says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God's revelation. You need milk, not solid food. The assumption is that the people who receive this instruction are themselves believers. And the clear statement is, they have been believers for some period of time. So long, in fact, that they should have mastered certain concepts and be able to teach them. But they have retrograded. So they are believers. They have had an experience of saving faith and have had it for some time. Their problem is they're dull of hearing. They're having problems focusing. They made some bad choices along the line, and now they're confused. But the first verse, write it down. That's in chapter 5 and in verse 13. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But he is an infant. He has been born again. So the writer is assuming that he's writing to people who themselves are spiritually alive. Number two, when the author then begins to address this urgent warning to them, look to what he says in chapter 6 and verse 1. Therefore leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to, what's that next word? Maturity. 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 He doesn't say, let's go on to evangelism. He doesn't say, let's go back to the four spiritual laws. He doesn't say, let's go back to John 3.16. He says, you folks have retrograded back to infancy. You need to move on to maturity. That would be like, that, that's like me talking to you tonight. That's not like me going into a, a funeral room where there's a dead carcass, and saying to that dead carcass, you need life so you can become mature. They're dead. That analogy to the spiritual world is that the people who have not confessed faith in Jesus Christ have not been born again, they are dead, they are dead in trespasses and sins. You don't talk to them about maturity. You talk to them about the new birth. You see what I'm saying? So the challenge of the writer is to take infantile Christians, believers, who have become retrograde in their faith and to stir them up and to motivate and to guide them into maturity. That's number two. Number three. Look at verse seven. Ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those uh, useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. That is saying that in the natural world God gives rain, gives sunshine, seeds that are planted there produce a bountiful crop, fruit. That's a harvest, that's beneficial, that's the blessing of God. The harvest is the blessing of God working through the natural laws of rain, sun, and seed. The soil produces fruit. And the writer calls that, it's a blessing from God. The blessing from God is the harvest that illustrates the principle Of active soil. It's good soil. That's his illustration.
0: Sometimes it's good to list the things we really know for sure and keep those in front of us. That works for the Bible and for life in general. We'll hear more of these clear statements that help us understand Hebrews 6 tomorrow. The Immutable Promise of God is the title Jim gave the sermon. Ask for it by name if you'd like to order the single CD. We offer those for a gift of $7 or more. The current series, God's Ultimatum, Volume 1, is 19 sermons long, and all those CDs will come to you for an offering of $66 or more. Who says there's no community spirit anymore, no camaraderie? There are like-minded believers from lots of different places uniting to energize this ministry. Thanks to all of you helping with your prayers and gifts. It's encouraging to know that you're with us. And if you'd like to pitch in, mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085 USA, or call 1-800-984-2313. Again, 800-984-2313. Or find us online at rightstartradio.org. You can make a secure donation there. Also, you can hear this radio program again or play programs from the audio library. And you can play or download sermons by Pastor Jim in their entirety. If it's already becoming difficult for you to catch the radio program because of holiday happenings, I'm telling you the Right Start podcast might be the solution. We'll show you how to set that up at rightstartradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. Is the author of Hebrews giving us a hypothetical when he writes of believers falling away? And what would be the purpose of that? We'll hear more evidence tomorrow on the next Right Start.